Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast, where I read the journals so you don't have to. This is episode 36 for the month of November of 2019. Thanks again for those of you who left reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate that. It really helps others discover the podcast. So for those of you who haven't left the review, what are you waiting for? If you have any articles you think I should review, please send it by email to info at gipearls.com or message me on Twitter, gi underscore pearls. And that's the end of intro, so let's go to the journals. Everything we touch these days is covered in plastics. All the food we eat comes in small little plastic packages. This study published in the Annals looked at poop to see what kind of plastic there is in human poo. Mind you, this is all involuntary consumption. It's not one of your frequent flyer swallowers who eat plastic objects. Nope, just regular folks living lives, eating and inadvertently ingesting plastic. This study took poop from eight volunteers from Japan, Russia, the UK, Italy, Poland, Finland, and Austria, and all eight samples contained microplastics. No surprise here. Somehow this grosses me out more than poop itself. But is it really that big of a deal to have plastic in your stool? I don't think we know just yet. And that could be a problem. Tofacitinib has been a welcome addition to the treatment list for IBD. Not that it is without problems, but it is a pill and not an infusion, and it's remarkable how fast it works sometimes. We have a lot of things to learn from our rheumatology colleagues who are ahead of the curve when it comes to using tofacitinib in patients. Jeffrey Curtis from Alabama published a paper in Arthritis Care Research Journal regarding the risk of herpes zoster, specifically in patients treated with tofacitinib. The paper looks at over 8,000 patients and incidence of zoster in these patients was almost 4% per year on tofacitinib alone, and you double that if you add on steroids or methotrexate into the mix. Two big takeaways here. One is that risk does go up. In RA patients, the absolute rates of zoster with tofacitinib in the absence of steroids or methotrexate was 3.4 to 3.7 per 100 person years, and it's double the rate of patients on Remicade or Humira. And once again, if you add steroids on top of tofacitinib, risk goes up again. It was interesting to note that zoster rates in clinical trials of tofacitinib for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis was not higher, but looks like in the real world, the zoster risk is higher. This is certainly something to think about, as I suspect this will be no different in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, and we're all kind of aware of this already. Second takeaway is that Zostavax decreases the risk, so vaccines do work once again. And remember, Shingrix, which is non-live version of Zoster vaccine, which is safe in patients who are immunocompromised or on immunosuppressants, is out there already. So Shingrix can be given to patients who are on tofacitinib. Once again, vaccines work. The next paper is just crazy enough to be real. If you believe that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a result solely of changes in the microbiome, then this paper is for you. In the past, there were several papers showing an association with enrichment or loss of some species of microbiota and development of NAFLD. So this group from China looked at patients with what is known as autobrewery syndrome, where people who consume no alcohol at all, just a high-carbohydrate diet, and are found to have high levels of alcohol in their blood. So of course these people also develop fatty liver as well. And to make a long story short, these autobrewery patients were treated with antibiotics and eventually 
the high alcohol-producing Klebsiella strain was found in these patients. And when cross-referenced with NAFLD, up to 60% of these patients had this bacteria growing in their gut. So they decided to do a series of mouse experiments showing that if your mice grow this bacteria in their gut, they develop fatty liver. And to make a very, very long story short, the authors believe that at least in some cases, NAFLD is a result of high alcohol-producing Klebsiella producing alcohol and leading to systemic damage, leading to fatty liver. And if you are asking if these mice were drunk, the answer is yes. Crazy stuff. Maybe crazy enough to be real in those with auto-brewery syndrome. Speaking of things liver, it has been a while since we had another joint from Elliot Tapper. It is time. He published a paper of incidence of hepatic encephalopathy in American patients with cirrhosis and associated risk factors. So he looked at over 160,000 Medicare patients with cirrhosis. About a third of these were from alcohol. And alcohol turned out to be the first risk factor associated with development of hepatic encephalopathy. So if your liver disease is from alcohol, you're more likely to develop HE. So why do we care if patients with cirrhosis develop encephalopathy? Well, it's not good. And obviously it's associated with worse outcomes, all other things being equal. After doing some fancy adjustment for confounders, they found that several drugs were associated with development of encephalopathy, these being benzos, opiates, GABAergic drugs, and PPIs. It is interesting to me that beta blockers were also on that list, which I guess are surrogates for portal hypertension development. I think Elliot tried to blame PPIs in some sort of mechanistic way on being more causative than it is, but I'm going to go ahead and disagree and say that I think PPIs here are also surrogates for portal hypertension since I've seen many docs put their cirrhosis patients on PPIs after their stomach shows some portal hypertensive gastropathy, maybe a little bit of oozing here and there, and not really anything else. Not really appropriate, but I do agree that PPIs are probably overused and we should reduce their use, whether they cause encephalopathy or not. The reason all of this is important is there are many other things that patients need to do other than just quit alcohol. And we can do many things to stop progression of liver disease. And studies like this trying to find other ways that we can intervene and stop development of hepatic encephalopathy. Key lessons here are you should not give dangerous meds to cirrhosis patients. And you should probably not give them meds they probably don't need. Also an interesting find in this study is that the risk of HE was lowest among patients who received gastroenterology or hepatology consultations at baseline. So another reason why gastroenterology is just awesome. Let's stay with cirrhosis for the moment. How effective is giving FFP in patients with cirrhosis before invasive procedures? Many docs out there request this to improve coagulation parameters, mainly hoping to improve endogenous thrombin function after transfusion of FFP. We all know that this is all bonkers, but some still believe it. And thankfully, good data is trickling in, showing that we're not crazy for thinking that FFP doesn't help in cirrhosis situation. This paper looked at efficacy of FFP in improving thrombin function in patients with cirrhosis. The findings were interesting, and I quote, FFP significantly ameliorated INR and APTT values, but in a minority of patients, the values were reduced to less than cutoff point of 1.5. Conclusions, FFP transfusion enhanced thrombin generation and ameliorated conventional coagulation tests to normal values in a limited number of patients and slightly decreased thrombin generation in 34% of cases. So the bottom line here is that, as the authors say in the lay summary, transfusion of FFP with the purpose of preventing or treating bleeding events 
could cause inherent risks and costs without clear benefits. So if you're transfusing a patient with FFP in context of cirrhosis, you might as well just pour it down the drain because that will help just as much. The chromoendoscopy debate continues to rage on. Is chromoendoscopy helpful in detecting unseen lesions? Meaning, can we see more than just looking at colon with just your conventional white light? One way to frame the debate is this way. Let's take a condition where it really matters if you find advanced neoplastic polyps in a condition where it happens often enough, like, I don't know, say Lynch syndrome, and does it make a difference there? Well, this is exactly what the Dutch folks did and published their results in GIE October issue. And aside here, one thing I liked about this paper is how they defined bowel prep. No Boston scale, no numbers, just good, fair, and poor. Good being that if you see everything, fair if you can see more than 90%, and poor if you see less than 90%. Very simple. As you can tell, I'm not a fan of the Boston Bowel Prep Scale, especially in clinical practice, where it serves, I believe, no purpose. I think it's a great tool for research, I'm not denying that, but for everyday clinical practice, not so useful. Let's go to the outcomes of this paper. So, does using indigo carmine help with detection of neoplasia? in Lynch syndrome patients. Remember, this was a randomized trial of over 100 patients with white light and over 100 patients with chromoendoscopy of Lynch syndrome patients with mutations in MSH6, MSH2, and MLH1. Even a few EPCAM mutations were thrown in the mix. They excluded PMS2 mutations patients. Total procedure time was about 10 minutes longer for chromoendoscopy. So are we wasting our time or not? Well, withdrawal time was 12 minutes for white light and 19 minutes, yes, 6 minutes longer for chromoendoscopy. And despite this huge difference in withdrawal time, there was no significant difference in detection of neoplasia. They did have more proximal polyps with chromoendoscopy, yes. But wait, one may even argue that if you adjust for withdrawal time, if anything, they probably found less polyps. Two years later, they repeated the whole study with about 90 patients each group coming back, and there was no difference in anything this time either. Polyps, neoplasia, advanced polyps, no difference at all. So, is this the nail in the coffin of chromoendoscopy? I certainly think so. Once again, remember, these are optimal conditions for finding bad stuff, meaning Lynch syndrome patients, randomized trial, can't get any better than that. Still, the lesson here, I think, is that withdrawal time probably matters a lot more than spraying dye into your colon. Let's talk about serrated polyps for a second. What's the difference between sessile serrated polyp and sessile serrated adenoma? No difference. In fact, you shouldn't use either term. It's sessile serrated lesions now. There's a review in October issue of Gastro discussing all of this from Seth Crockett and Iris Nactigal. Let's talk about these three types of polyps. As you know, hyperplastic polyps are mostly distal. Sessile serrated lesions are mostly proximal. And traditional serrated adenomas, which are rare, are also distal. What distinguishes serrated lesions from hyperplastic polyps is the presence of serration that extends to the base of the crypt. Pathologists often comment on the dilated and inverted T's or boot-shaped crypts. They also have the famous mucus cap when viewed endoscopically. Another focus of this review was the fact that many hyperplastic polyps from years past are actually misclassified sessile serrated lesions. Why does that matter? Well, of course it matters for the follow-up. So where are we standing with the guidelines for follow-up for these lesions? International serrated consensus panel recommends that if a patient is found to have a large hyperplastic polyp 
meaning over 10 millimeters, or three or more proximal hyperplastic polyps, or one or two sesulcerated lesions over centimeters, you're supposed to bring this patient back in five years. Only the last statement is true in the United States, by the way. And if sesulcerated polyps larger than a centimeter are found, you come back in three years. Other international society guidelines have a bit of a difference in opinion here, and this review summarizes different guidelines in one nifty table, so go check it out. Plenty of evidence out there, including from a cool study from Heiko Pohl that I will review in a bit, showing that sessile serrated lesions and traditional serrated adenomas have an increased risk of synchronous and metachronous cancer or advanced adenomas. One meta-analysis showed that the risk goes up two to four-fold if you have a sessile serrated lesion. By the way, what should the target sessile serrated polyp detection rate be? There are studies out there showing that it should be in the range of 11%. If you want to take a look at that paper, it's in the show notes or online at gipearls.com. This next thing is a guideline that is a bit controversial, so definitely worth discussing. For your upper GI bleed patients, say you have a bleeding peptic ulcer, do you recommend IVPPI twice a day or continuous drip for 72 hours? I felt that the evidence didn't show a difference between these two, so subjecting patients to a continuous IV was just torturing them, but apparently I'm wrong. So let's see exactly what it is that is in this guideline. This is an international consensus group guideline on management of upper GI bleeds. I'm just going to list the most important things point by point. 1. Resuscitation is crucial, and I hope you already know this, no difference between crystalloids or colloids, so go with the cheap stuff. Saline or Ringer's lactate is probably just fine, and that's what the guideline recommends. 2. If you're not using Glasgow Blatchford scoring, you probably should, especially when evaluating patients in the emergency department. If the score is 1 or 0, you can probably send them home. Well, great. What about the other scores? The group said specifically don't use AIM-65 and couldn't say anything about the Rockall score. So I guess we are stuck with the Blatchford score. 3. NG tubes to evaluate the upper GI bleed is in vogue. Again, I suppose. I must say I rarely do this, if ever. I guess if you really want to prove that the bleed is in the upper GI tract, it would be helpful if you suction some blood out in the NG tube. I don't see a huge benefit as this rarely happens when you don't expect it. I guess what I'm saying here is that if your pretest probability of an upper GI bleed is high, you're going to scope anyway, whether something comes out on the NG tube or not. 4. What is the transfusion threshold? This guideline unequivocally states that you should transfuse those with a hemoglobin below 8 grams per deciliter or 80 grams per liter for those Europeans out there. 5. Give them even more blood if they have cardiac disease. How much more? They don't say. Just give more blood. 6. This one makes sense. If patient is on warfarin or one of those new fancy DOACs, don't delay endoscopy just waiting for the drug to wash out of the system. Reverse it if you can and then do the endoscopy. Don't just wait 24, 48, 72 hours to do the endoscopy. So speaking of endoscopy, let's go over the endoscopic management recommendation. Statement 3 here, scope the bleeder urgently, meaning within 24 hours. Not 2 hours, not 6 hours, not 12 hours, but within 24 hours. Main reason to do this earlier is probably so you can discharge the patient sooner once you control the bleed or show that it has stopped, as would be the case with a clean-based non-bleeding ulcer. The consensus could not make a recommendation for or against 12 hours mark. So there still may be a role for doing it sooner than 24 hours, I think so, and 12 hours seems reasonable, at least to me. 
Next statement deals with the clot. If you see a clot on top of an ulcer, you should wash it away if you can. But if you can't, what to do here is controversial. They say PPI therapy alone may be enough and you may not need to pluck away at it. Obviously, this is still kind of debatable. The next statement says that you should probably use clips on visible vessels. And that one makes sense. Now, what should you use to stop the bleeding itself? Statement B10 of the guideline states that you should use thermal therapy or sclerosant agents. Now, I don't think there's many people using sclerosants for stopping bleeding in ulcers with visible vessels or bleeding vessels. Most people do heat and clipping. Hemospray made it into the guidelines, finally, with the statement 11 stating that you should only use it as a temporizing measure, meaning you should probably go back and relook later when you can and actually fix things if needed. And now the most controversial part of the guidelines, section C, the drugs, pharmacologic therapy. H2 blockers and somatostatin or octreotide are not recommended. No surprise there. Statement three of the guidelines for high-risk stigmata, use IV loading dose followed by continuous infusion of PPIs. No longer do they recommend BID dose. Now, mind you, they're talking about high-risk ulcers, those that are actively bleeding or high-risk stigmata like visible vessel. Red spot by itself is not enough. Neither apparently is an adhered clot. But they didn't say you shouldn't use high-dose PPI for clot either. I guess this is still a gray zone. Now, statement four, once you complete the now mandatory 72-hour hospital stay with continuous infusion of PPI at 8 milligrams per hour, and by the way, the loading dose is still 80. So what do you do after the 72 hours? You do 14 days of twice-daily PPI and then once daily for how long? I don't know. But if patient is anticoagulated, probably forever. That's all I'm going to say on this very controversial guideline on upper GI bleeds. It's very densely written. Major changes once again being that no longer will they tolerate the twice daily IV PPI for high risk ulcers and IV infusion is the new standard. Let me know what you think about this one. Now, speaking of things bleeding, I want to bring your attention to two studies published back-to-back in gastroenterology in October. First one comes from Texas. They looked at what happens when you remove large polyps in terms of bleeding risks with or without clips to close the defect that is formed when you remove a large polyp. Over 1,000 VA patients who had a polyp larger than 1 centimeter were randomly assigned to clip versus no clip once the polyp was removed. Outcomes were rectal bleeding, resulting in drop in hemoglobin more than two points, hemodynamic instability, getting another colonoscopy or angiography, or even worse, surgery within 30 days of colonoscopy. Thankfully, no one needed surgery or angiography in either cohort. Conclusion is very interesting. Prophylactic clip placement did not affect proportion of delayed bleeding events. So it appears that when removing polyps of at least one centimeter in size, And if you don't see any bleeding happening at the moment of polypectomy, it's probably okay not to clip. This study was underpowered to detect the difference though, so there are some drawbacks. Apparently the authors ran out of money for the study to go on, which is very unfortunate because this is a big deal. And by the way, these polyps were mostly removed by hot snare. So the very next paper tells us something different. And I have to give credit to Heike Pohl for putting the conclusion of the study right in the title. Clip closure prevents bleeding after endoscopic resection of large colonic polyps in a randomized trial. Here they looked at large polyps over two centimeters and over 18 medical centers 
and randomly assigned polyps to clips versus no clip. So was there a difference here in a study of over 900 patients? Let's take a look at the results. 3.5% overall post-procedure bleeding rate was observed in the clip group and 7.1% in the control group. Now that's a lot of bleeding. And as you see, clips seem to reduce this. Amazing, right? Well, not so fast. Apparently the whole difference was limited to polyps found in the right colon, where bleeding risk went down from 96 down to 3.3%. Now that's a lot less bleeding. Effect was independent of antithrombotic medications used or polyp size. Remember, these are very large polyps anyway. And one more note, these are non-pedunculated polyps that we're talking about. So the size of the defect is pretty sizable. There's a lot of talk in the discussion whether it's a good idea to close the defect completely. And the authors argue that you should. And I don't know, I'm going to go ahead and disagree here. I think that a few strategically placed clips can dramatically reduce the risk of bleeding depending on the situation. Since even in this study, there was no increased bleeding due to increased polyp size. Even for four centimeter polyps and over a third of these large polyps, the defect could not be closed completely. And these are not the people who bled a lot. One thing I want to say is that if you don't know how to clip, you probably should clip the whole thing closed. But if you know what you're doing, maybe less clips is better. I guess what these two studies show is the following. We are probably clipping too much, often in the wrong place. And the answer to the question of whether you should clip or not clip is probably somewhere in the middle. Or at least, I guess, in the right colon. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. It was great to meet the fans of the podcast in San Antonio, Texas for the ACG meeting, which was very fun. So keep leaving those reviews on iTunes and keep sending me those articles. Sorry for a bit of audio issues in this podcast. And thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.